1: Welcome to Culture Calculus, I'm Kavitha Davidson, and today I'll be joined by Jason Jones, who covers the Sacramento Kings for The Athletic we'll be interviewing Alicia Kennedy, who is a food writer who writes a lot about the meat industry versus plant-based diets, the culture of veganism, and how the food that we eat intersects with class and gender and all kinds of good stuff. So hope you enjoy. We're very excited to have Alicia Kennedy, food writer extraordinaire on the show. First of all, Alicia, thank you so much for being here. I want to ask you, why food? Like, How did you get into writing about food?
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. And I got into writing about food through actually having a vegan bakery of my own. I didn't have a brick and mortar, but I I worked out of a commissary kitchen. I sold stuff at like little natural groceries on Long Island. I did farmer's markets. Um, and that was something I did on the side while I was working as a copy editor at New York Magazine. And so uh, after a while, you know, running your own food business kind of sucks. <laughs> there's, there's very slim margins. Uh, you would make no money. And so I decided to, you know, combine those two things, like the working in, mag- in a magazine and the cooking and baking and, and just start to write about food.
1: How long have you been a vegan?
2: I am actually not vegan anymore. I was a strict vegan for five years, six years. Now I'm a vegetarian, um, but I haven't eaten meat for 10 years.
3: Okay. Yeah. Could you explain the difference between being a vegan and a vegetarian for those of us out here who get the two mixed up?
2: Sure. Yeah. So vegetarians will still eat cheese or eggs, animal byproducts, but a vegan will not eat those things. A vegan eats no animal byproducts and no animal products. No fish, too, for both.
1: (laughs) And you wrote recently, I mean, you've written quite extensively about uh, kind of counteracting, I think, probably the popular notion of what a vegan or who a vegan is, right? right? Um, And I will totally admit to having, before reading your work, this notion of The white vegan essentially, the white, rich, liberal, you know, kind of hoarding veganism as a moral authority over other people. Um, And after reading your work, it's changed my mind about that. So can you talk a little bit about where veganism comes from and why we have these misconceptions of who vegans are?
2: Right. Well, veganism, you know, it goes back centuries, people doing, wanting to do less harm, so to speak, in their eating, wanting to, you know, not kill animals or put animals to work for their food uh that that goes back centuries that has there's people who've made that decision in every culture there is but the word veganism only came into vogue in you know like the 1940s it was a british person and like so many things you know a white british guy gave it a name and then it's disappeared everything that happened literally beforehand. the history of
1: the world exactly. <laughs>
2: And so that's why the way we think of veganism, especially in the U.S., is so so white, so bourgeois, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and there's also the fact that veganism in the United States has taken so many foods from specifically Asia and just kind of co-opted them so that people don't really understand them as much in their original context, you know, like people think, don't think of tofu as much as in a dish like mapo tofu or, uh, you know, uh, in your miso soup or, or something like that. Like in Japanese cuisine, they think of it as like something vegans turn into, a meat thing or, or try and tell you it's a meat thing instead of and, and so veganism has done right a like lot. in the yeah. sorry like
1: in the cultures that you that you described in those particular dishes like tofu for example is just an ingredient yeah. it's not a meat substitute exactly. it's just part of the
3: <laughs> yeah. right. in my exposure to tofu in college it looked like a meat substitute which made me run away from it I, exactly, I, I, want exactly. Meat, I want meat you know and i also was, was kind of trained that veganism and tofu was something that rich people did Mm -hmm. and you know like i've never seen that in the store i grew up around so i'm not touching that Mm
2: -hmm. right (laughs) and yeah, it's, it's not correct. As you said, like, these are just ingredients, you know, mapo tofu will traditionally have pork in it. Um, There will be, you know, it's not something that is only, you know, the other thing for the vegetarian or the vegan to eat. It has its own history. It has its own culinary traditions. And so, yeah, in, in the United States, veganism has kind of gotten a bad rap because it deserves a bad rap because it has uh you know it's been it, it has whitewashed the food of of other cultures it uh a lot of white vegans are angry about you know indigenous food practices that uh include meat which is just silly because you know these these are practices that existed for a long time these are practices that are wildly sustainable you know there's evidence that if we were to uh, eat and, and keep land in the in the ways in which you know indigenous people did in the U.S. We would you know go a really long way toward you know kind of uh, ending climate change. And so uh, there's a lot lacking in in white Western veganism. And so it's important for me to kind of like try and re <laughs> properly rehistoricize what it means to not eat meat.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, how do you, like, I, I feel like I have this conversation with my family a lot. My family are, you know, they're, they're from India. Um, they're not vegetarian Indians. Um, mm-hmm. They're very decidedly not vegetarian Indians. Um, and, you know, frankly, my dad grew up fairly poor. My mother mm-hmm. didn't, but my, my dad grew up fairly poor. And, and, you know, he talks a lot about not having access to meat and not mm-hmm. being able to afford to eat meat. Um, and whenever I have conversations with him where I'm trying, you know, to get him to be a little bit more vegetable forward or, you know, just healthier in general and, and right. definitely obviously more sustainable. And you talk about sustainable fish and, um, and, and, you know, the sourcing of your food. It does always kind of come down to, well, this is a luxury because like Covey, you've always been able to afford to eat meat. So yeah. you giving it up isn't something that you're depriving yourself of. How do you have that conversation, which comes from a, a really genuine place, right? right. Um, with an eye towards still, you know, caring about the environment and being sustainable and also health. Right. Well, it has such important implications in
2: all those ways. And I completely, you know, I'm very much about respecting everyone's, you know, everyone's, you know, history and with meat, because it is so significant, and it is so varied globally. But in the United States, it's, it's very complicated, because even though we don't all have the same access to things, there is a problem where we produce so much meat, so much more meat than, you know, anyone maybe should eat. I don't like to use the word should, but, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're really taxing the environment. We're also, um, you know, subsidizing the meat and dairy industry, uh, Mm -hmm. with $38 billion a year versus 17 million that goes to fruits and vegetables, you know? And also there are terrible, there are terrible working conditions for agricultural workers, also, but the the uh, environmental racism that is faced by people who live around meat processing plants, um, mm-hmm. the working conditions of a lot of undocumented laborers in meat processing plants, um, that people suffer, you know, repetitive motion in, in injuries, people in the in the COVID-19 pandemic have been inadequately protected from the virus. There have been, um, you know, managers at a Tyson plant bet on how many people would get COVID-19, it was really disastrous. And I think that this moment hopefully showed that the way we produce meat for a level of consumption that hits 220 pounds of meat per year per American is not okay. It's it's not natural to, to how we should eat. It's also you know a, co- a big cause of diet-related disease as well, which has impacts for all of us. And so we're using our tax money in the U.S. to subsidize an industry that is bad for workers, bad for the environment, bad for animals, and in the end, bad for our own health. And so I think that the best way to have this conversation with folks who are, uh, you know, have an attachment to meat for varied reasons, whether it's economic or, or cultural or culinary, uh, is about, you know, pointing those things out you know that it's really it's also bad for people it's not just we're not just talking about animals we're talking about people we're talking about the planet and to also remind people that you know the price of meat being cheap in the us isn't uh a natural occurrence it is Mm -hmm. on the basis of these lobbyists for the meat and dairy industry making sure that they keep getting that money to subsidize what they do while they still pay workers, you know, nothing. <laughs> and, and you know, and, and while the meat processing industry in the U.S. used to be uh, unionized, it no longer is. I don't think we're ever going to see that happen. I think they'd fight that tooth and nail. And so it's just really poor conditions uh, beyond that. And it's also you know uh, something that the government supports that technically we support. And so I, I think when people become aware of those things in a more real way, I think they naturally kind of understand that, you know what, maybe I could eat less meat in a day. Maybe I could, you know, one meal a day, I don't eat meat. and it's okay. (laughs) And like, I always try and tell people that those changes are, are meaningful, even though they might not feel meaningful on a grand Mm -hmm. scale. If we all, you know, cut back a little bit on, on meat and dairy, we would have such a huge impact.
1: Right. It doesn't have to be an absolutist thing.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
3: (laughs) We talk about the meat and cutting back. And as a guy who came up in sports, we're always taught, you know, Hey, you got to get your protein, you know, that's a steak. That's, you know, two <laughs> or three chicken breasts. And even though we've seen some athletes, you know, like Chris Paul, Cam Newton talk about changing their diet, it still feels like you're combating, you know, centuries, especially with men, the idea that yeah. I want my protein, you know, you go get you know, you get some actual meat. Just how yeah. do you work with, you know, in the sports world, educating, you know, people like myself and other athletes about, you know, how you can consume protein outside of just meat.
2: Yeah. Well, that's that's real and and it's definitely connected to ideas we have around masculinity and what a what a manly body looks like and performs like and that's so complicated. There's a great book about it called The Sexual Politics of Meat by Carol Adams. And you know, I, I've seen a lot of athletes going vegetarian or vegan or, or "quote unquote" plant-based in the last few years, and I think that it's really important because it shows people that it's it's not you know incompatible with you know strength training or or having a really you know athletic. I don't, you know, I'm not a sports person. So I, <laughs> I'm, but I'm trying, yeah. So the, but at the same time, there is so much protein to be had in a vegetarian or vegan diet as well. I mean, if you're vegetarian, you have eggs, obviously, which you can source well from, from local farmers and, or maybe even your neighbor who has chickens. Um, and, you know, when you're vegan, like things like brown rice and beans or lentils, these are things that are really high in protein and that are also, you know, good for the planet um, as well. Um, but you know, it's it's hard to convince people to eat a lot of beans. A lot of people have <laughs> digestive issues with beans, that sort of thing. I'm gonna say there's, the, the the tempeh is like one of the best things to eat if you want a lot of protein because it is already, it's fermented a little and so that it's really digestible. So that's like a really great way to get protein that doesn't have that same impact as like eating a ton of beans might have on someone who who is watching their protein and, and you know, might have to equal maybe a steak they'd have to eat like two pounds of beans i that would be disastrous digestively i think but you know in tempeh you're for it's fermented it's an indonesian food and i think that's that's something really great and i mean there's so many new protein sources as well like pea protein um hemp protein like what i say to people all the time about you know going Plant-based is that it loosens you up for so much more diversity in what you eat. You know, you can maybe you want to have a chicken breast or have a piece of fish, but one day a week, and the rest of the time you're eating lentils or tempeh or even tofu or you know um, anything like that. And then also you're having different sources of protein in in your shakes and smoothies. Like you know maybe you're having whey, but you're also having hemp, and you're also having um, pea protein, like the diversity and, and diversifying the protein sources and what you eat is so, so important. And that's another thing. It's like, it's not about being an absolutist and getting rid of everything all the time. Like, but it is about having many different sources for what you eat and many different like ways of eating that that's really the thing, you know, because it's that 220 pounds of meat per person. That is the, the problematic aspect of, <laughs> of our, our consumption.
3: Does it matter how you dress it up as well? I know some of my friends that didn't want to touch anything plant-based saw the Burger King Impossible Burger and all of a sudden it was like, okay, I can eat this because it looks like a burger.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and,
3: you know, nope. there's that whole feeling of I don't want to be out with my friends eating, you know, a piece of tofu. This looks like a burger. Does that right. help, you know, in just in kind of changing the ideas and the viewpoints?
2: I think it helps when you're talking about, you know, especially how deeply entrenched in masculine ideals meat consumption is. I think that that's where we have a lot of luck with things like Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers where they don't have that uh, feminizing stigma attached to them or, you know, which also when it comes to, when you're talking about tofu and and saying it's a bit, it's too feminine to eat tofu, that gets us into a lot of uh, race related issues Mm -hmm. in terms of perception of Asian cuisine and Asian people. But at the same time, yeah it, it is super important to get people to make that leap, and I think that if the impossible burgers and Beyond burgers get people to be more comfortable with the idea that's that 's a win uh, eventually <laughs>
1: <laughs> The impossible burger is so interesting to me because I mean so much of what we 've just talked about right now is obviously um, to do with gender there 's obviously a huge class aspect here and and those things intersect as well. What has it been like to, for you to see and how have you seen the industry shifting to have fast food joints now with with plant-based meat substitutes?
2: Right, right. Well, it's, you know, it's this double-edged sword because it's, it's good in one way to have those options out there and to have those options accessible to people. And then you also have this other side of it where these companies that are selling these products aren't, you know, they're not, having a vegan option at Burger King doesn't make Burger King source their meat better, it doesn't have Mm -hmm. them source their cheese or their vegetables better from, you know, and that's not, you know, that's not a win necessarily. And then, you know, they're not, it's not making them pay a $15 wage to their workers. You know, we see, uh, fast food workers really fighting to increase the minimum wage because, you know, it's keeping, it's keeping people in poverty, even though they're working full-time. And so, it's a it's very a double-edged sword because you also want people to have that access to those products but at the same time you want that access to also come with better conditions for everybody whether they're working in agricultural fields in the fast food restaurant in the meat processing plants you want you would hope that like the rising tide would lift all ships in this mm-hmm. case but it it doesn't and so um, I'm always talking about that that we have to like we can't just say oh it's good it's good there's vegan options it's like no we have to also, hope that all these other things get better for everybody too. Um, and at the same time as well, there's the agricultural concerns around, you know, the impossible burgers made with genetically modified soy that's grown in, in what we call monocrop uh, systems where, you know, this isn't good for biodiversity. And again, but biodiversity is what we want, whether it's in terms of what we're eating or what we're growing. And so it's, it's, it's good in that one way where you're like, okay, people are going to be more open to eating something that doesn't involve meat. But at the same time, we ha- I have a lot of concerns uh, around other issues that are not that are not being addressed with the same fanfare,
1: you know, mm-hmm. right. Now the complete opposite end of the impossible Whopper is 11 Madison park going fully vegan. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm assuming you have thoughts about this.
2: <laughs> oh, I have thoughts. Yeah. And that, you know, I, it's not, you know, I'm not going to go probably like I used to be a restaurant. I used to write restaurant reviews for the village voice when I lived in New York and they would pay for my meals to go. Like I would have been able to go do it then. Am I going to spend $335 to go eat something and probably be hungry after and want to go get noodles? Like, no, like I'm not going to do that. Um, uh, Even though for me, it would be a work expense. It would be tax deductible at least, but um, it's just, it's, it's good in the same way that like the impossible burger is good at Burger King. It's like it's this one little move that gets people talking and thinking differently about things a little bit. But it doesn't change much for everybody else, you know, like um, my complaint is always that you'll go to like a nice neighborhood restaurant and there's going to be one vegan dish for you to eat or like one vegetarian dish like that's the the culture you want to see change is that when people go to any old restaurant for lunch and dinner that they have more choices in that way you know
1: right
2: when you when you're talking about 11 Madison Park you're changing things for like super rich people you're not changing things for everybody else like everyone if people are saying like oh this is going to be a big cultural moment and I'm like I don't think so because for most people you're not 11 Madison Park you don't have that huge reputation of being like the world's best restaurant you don't have a ready audience willing to pay $335 for a tasting menu meal like not everyone can make that decision and and still be profitable, whereas 11 Madison Park has space to do that. And I would just like to see more credit given to chefs like Amanda mm-hmm. Cohen at Dirt Candy, who's been doing vegetarian fine dining since 2000, 2008. Um, Dominique Crenn in San Francisco, she already cut out meat and fish like in 2019. Elaine um, Passard in Paris, he, he started doing this stuff in like the early 2000s. Like it's not new, Daniel Hum is is, you know, making a moment for himself, a press moment for himself. And I'm happy for him. And I'm happy that people going there aren't going to be eating meat. That's a win. But it's such a small audience. Again, like, you know, you're not really, you're not
1: really changing things for for most people. Just to give our listeners some background, yeah. Eleven Madison Park is a three Michelin starred restaurant in New York. was named uh, the world's fit, well, was named number one in the world a couple of years ago. Um, you know, multi course tasting menu, and announced recently that they're going to be completely plant based. And like Alicia said, it's you know a three hundred and thirty five to three hundred and fifty five dollar meal that isn't the most accessible to a lot of people. Um, but there, there, you know, there has been a lot of fanfare about a restaurant of this caliber and of this stature right. going to be going to a completely plant-based thing but also as you said um there are plenty of other fine dining establishments that have done mm-hmm. this i'm actually doing the grand feast at dominique Crenn in nice. August.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and doesn't that kind of decision too also play into that stereotype that veganism is this elite type of thing that you know the, mm-hmm. the common person just can't get to it's like oh of course they can do it they you know they have a lot of money. If I'm
1: paying $400 for a plant-based meal, it better taste good, right? Yeah. <laughs> you
3: know, you, you think about it and you hear, even when you hear about celebrities switching, people will say, you know what? They've got, a, they've got a chef probably. They can just pay someone to make all that. Why would I, what could I do, you know, just as a yeah. common person with a regular job to switch over to a vegan or a vegetarian lifestyle when I don't have a you know, a, a full-time chef or I can't, you know, go and spend $300 on a week's worth of groceries.
2: Yeah. No, it's hard. And, and that's why I'm, I'm always like making the small changes, diversifying the protein sources. That actually does make a big difference. You know, like stocking your pantry with tons of canned beans so that like one day you're like, you know what, I'm just going to like make some black bean tacos or like put some chickpeas in a salad. Like, you know, just making those switches to something easier really does make a difference even if you're not full-time vegetarian.
3: Yeah, I tried a, I tried a plant based sausage last week for the first time, and someone told me just don't eat it like you think it's going to be a regular sausage. And yeah, I cooked it and ate it, and it was it tasted just fine. And it was I was surprised because I was expecting to bite into it and be like, like taste. <laughs> <or something. laughs> and I
1: I wish our listeners could see the face Jason just
3: made. <laughs> I'm just saying. I mean, I I didn't know, I mean I had you know I didn't know what to expect. I'm like you know going me give this a try. Yeah. It's in the freezer. <laughs> <laughs> cooked it and you know while the kid I forgot what the kids were eating I said let me give this a try and I was like hmm okay it's not bad I could do this because people have always said you should give meatless Monday a try and I'm like well how am I to lift weights and not eat any meat so I'm even I'm struggling with the whole idea that you get protein from something other than meat maybe I'm just old and don't want to change but that was like <laughs> my first major step and you know what let me try something different and see how I feel
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. How did you feel?
3: Oh, fine. I mean, it wasn't like I was, you know, (laughs) see, you you go into it thinking, you know what, I'm gonna be so hungry when I'm done.
2: Yeah. You know,
3: (laughs) know, this is going to be, you know, it's going to run right through me, you know, (laughs) and I did and I was fine. And I've had friends try to convince me, you know, just give it, you know, give it a try. You won't be all messed up. And they were right. You know, I was like, okay, I can do this, you know, once, maybe twice a week or before. Asked me 10 years ago, I'd have said, no way. That's like what the hippies do. And I went to school in Berkeley. <laughs> so maybe I got a that real makes- I got a real bad slant.
2: <laughs> yeah. It <laughs> yeah.
3: was like if you touched meat around the vegans in Berkeley, it was like, How dare you? And you got the whole I wanted to ask you about that as well. There's people who want to try the diet, but they don't necessarily know the other issues as far as workers and all those things. And that might also drive them away. How have you seen people deal with that as well? Just kind of, I want to try it, but maybe I don't want to know. I'm not ready to get into the human aspect and the rights aspect.
2: Yeah, well, for me, it's always about if you want to help someone eat less meat, it's about that kind of thing. It's about, you know, making someone a nice meal Or telling someone what the product is, the sausage is, that that's going to be good. Or, you know, for me, it was always I bake cookies and and people like them and then they find out that that vegan stuff doesn't all taste bad, you know. And so like having more of a, you know, conversation with folks about it. And so that's why I really am angry when, when there are vegans who are like, you know, they get angry with me. They, they say, you know, that I, you can't listen to me because now I eat eggs from like the local farmer's market, you know? Like I'm, (laughs) and it's like, I still don't eat meat. I never eat meat. I don't eat any fish. And like, I, you know, I'll get goat cheese maybe from a local farmer, but like, then that's me being evil and you can't listen to me. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. how do you talk to most of the people in the world who eat meat regularly? If you think that I, a vegetarian, am a terrible person. (laughs) Like, um, and so it's, it's important to, for those who are vegan or vegetarian to be really compassionate with other people that and and show them how to diversify and always keep in mind that the end goal isn't it's not always going to be making someone vegan or making someone vegetarian, like the end goal should be less meat consumption for, and less, you know, reliance on these things, um, that are because they are detrimental to the planet. And so that's for me, the, the, the approach all the time is like, you know, make it easy, make it delicious and like, just be nice. And, (laughs) but like, that's, you know, that's a lot to ask for some people. And I, you know, at the same time, I understand the perspective of people who, you know, think that animals are, are suffering, which they are, but, and, and just can't stand it, and so, you know, (laughs) get really angry. I understand both sides, but I think when you're dealing with most people, you need to be, like, wildly compassionate, and just really educational, and really just, you know, talk about it in an accessible way, and make sure that what you're saying is also accessible, you know, in terms of uh, economics, in terms of time, you know, like, make sure, it's not about soaking, making sure you soak dry beans every single night of your life. And like, cause that's not how most people live, you know? And so like making sure people know canned beans are fine to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, that's sort of like my approach to it is always
1: to, to hopefully be nice. Thank
0: you. I appreciate (laughs) that. That's so
1: interesting. (laughs) <laughs> I, I mean I appreciate that too because and I, I probably grew up with well I, I probably just know a lot more vegans than the average American mm-hmm. does just because I'm from and live in New York City. Yeah. But um, you know, I do think that there can be this like vigilanteism almost, yeah. right? <laughs> this like very like um, you know, hard and fast like orthodoxy about veganism that can be off putting even to people who who want to learn more about yeah. it, right? Yeah. No, it's very
2: problematic, It's like on multiple levels, because sometimes, you know, you don't know people's health needs, nutritional needs, Mm -hmm. you don't know what, you know, I have a friend who has allergies that, you know, if, if they were going to stop eating meat, they would like have nothing (laughs) to eat, like, you know, like very little, like they wouldn't be able to survive. And like, that's a reality that you have to acknowledge. And like, that's why it's especially weird, like the vegans on the internet who get really, um, high and mighty, it's like, you don't know who you're talking to and you don't know their problems. Like, and so, yeah, it's, it's very much, you got to get off the high horse when you're, when you're talking about these things, because, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to change how you eat and that needs to be recognized and honored.
1: Right. I wanted to ask you about, I mean, Jason, Jason made a great point and and you guys talked about, um How meat is so gendered yeah. and um, you know just the popular conception about manliness and masculinity and meat, but what about? Americanness, right? Oof, like yeah. there's there's a huge strain. I mean, first of all, there's just a gigantic meat lobby. Like the American yeah. Meat Institute is a thing, um, and there is an extremely close connection of cattle raising and cattle farming, and and of the land itself, right. um, and meat and what it means to be a patriot and American. And yeah. how do we, like, like, where does that come from? How do we kind of evolve past that? Ugh, I mean, if I knew the answer to
2: that, uh, <laughs> my book would be done. <laughs> but... <laughs> um i you know it's so ingrained i mean when i was growing up probably when you you both were growing up too we had the commercials on tv where it's like a cowboy being like beef it's what's for dinner and and there was like pork the other white meat and it's like like (laughs) yeah it's just connecting the these these meat items to the idea of family to the idea of like you know home and and uh comfort and that sort of thing and also manliness because it was there's these older ones that I never saw when I was growing up uh from the 80s where it's like it's really like Sam Elliott or some it's some other cowboy dude or like just like cutting into that steak and like
1: what's the biggest mustache you can think
2: exactly of? <laughs> And like, that is deeply, deeply, deeply ingrained in US culture. And it's so difficult to untangle that. Um, I mean, you remember when Oprah got sued too in the 90s by Mm. the the ranchers for suggesting that she was afraid to eat beef because of mad cow disease. And like, that was a huge deal. But at the same time, like nothing has changed. (laughs) Like, like, you know, we have Upton Sinclair's, the jungle from like 1900. And like Mm -hmm. the conditions for workers in the meat industry are not much different, you know, they're better, but they're not much different. And so, um, It's really difficult to untangle. The government has, you know, all these lobbyists have such a stake in keeping it the way that it is, eating the 220 pounds of meat per year. I mean, when we recently had this fake news thing with the Daily Mail saying that Biden's new climate plan would only allow people to eat four pounds of beef per year. Oh, right,
1: yeah. The Democrats want to take your your meat. That was a whole thing. Yes,
2: That's, that's constantly a whole thing. They're always saying, like, the Democrats are going to take your beef. Um, and the, it's this four pounds of beef thing. It just made everyone nuts. Like just men on Twitter, uh, like, sorry to make, but it's men. They're, they're on Twitter (laughs) just posting these, (laughs) these huge steaks. And it's like. You no, no one is taking that away. Like, how would that be enforced? Well, like the ability to, to
3: celebrated <laughs> with men. Like, you look at the role, yeah. they have the whole con, you know, you think about it, you know, mm-hmm. th- they have contests for how much meat you can eat. Who can eat the 96 pounds of, you know, meat? Not, not, I mean, 96 ounces, not pounds, but you know. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> you go you get almost uh, almost half your year in one sitting but you know i go i'll go to fat burger they'll have it on the wall you know who ate the you know
1: the plaque for finishing all the all like all the seafood or all the you meat know, right? you know,
3: so yeah. i mean that that's part of the being a man that you know hey you the whole stereotype you get down you get your you know 24 ounce steak and you eat the whole thing and if you can you get, yeah you know, you know it's the whole meat and potatoes and i don't know how you break men especially away from that because from the time you're you know little boy you're told you know you know eat your you know you're like i said you're and yeah. potatoes
2: yeah no it's really difficult and also like as you touched on it's tied to these ideas of abundance where and affluence where if mm-hmm. we just have and that's also tied to masculinity and virility and like the strength of the United States as a nation in, in power in the world is so t- so tied to the idea that we have really, really abundant meat available all the time. Like, the reason President Trump, uh, you know, uh, ordered that meat processing was an essential business was because, can you imagine going to a, a, a supermarket in the United States and the meat section being empty like that would mean we'd lost our our way like as a society that like, last and so, year. yeah yeah
3: and people lost uh, their minds <laughs>
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I never go to the store and look at the meat section. I think we were okay here in Puerto Rico where I live, but like people, and there were, oh, there were like at Costco or or, uh, something or at Walmart, there were limits on how much meat you could buy. Like, and they had to fix that really fast because otherwise, you know, it would be really meaningful actually to have those empty meat sections. Um, It would be saying this isn't essential to life actually.
1: (laughs) Well, everything, everything about, about Americanism is excess, right? And celebrating that. Um, Although there is, I will say like there, you know, there, there's a strain in, in especially Asian cultures where, you know, to your point about prosperity and affluence, like calling someone fat or noting how, how, how much weight somebody has gained is actually a compliment because it means that you can afford to eat enough that you're prosperous. Right. Um, And so there are just all of these like very interesting kind of cultural notions that go, that go into it and in a, in a country as culturally diverse as ours you know that kind of i guess adds the barrier of what of what you're dealing with
2: for sure yeah and i mean it's also tied to whiteness of course like the abundant in the us like the abundant meat and like that everyone is able to have access to that amount of meat like in the beginning of of uh, you know in the late 1800s when meat processing was like and and was kind of becoming a monopoly and like was the had these chicago meat packers who were kind of taking over the industry like there was uh, there were cultural problems and there was friction when people realized that it really meant everyone had access to meat like mm-hmm. then it you had to create new differences so that affluent white people had different access to meat from from you know poor white people or from people of different backgrounds and races like it, they had to create new differences and new tiers mm-hmm. within the meat system when they made meat too accessible to everybody and like there were you know lots of racist comments about you know you can't live on rice alone like those people like that was that was a big part of making meat american and beef specifically like an american pastime like so it's so tied up in all these things and i mean it still is because you know what what cuts of meat are places that are expensive, like really nice steakhouses going to serve versus what you're getting at Applebee's. You know, mm-hmm. like there is still that big differential in terms of access, but at the same time everyone's still eating beef. And that's the important thing when you're in when you're in the US.
1: <laughs> I did want to ask you about Alison Roman. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I thought I was done with it. Well, what I think I'm out. Sorry. They pull me back. I in. know. Yeah. I back in. <laughs> well and here's why because you know again, we've talked so much about like the unique Americanness of, of meat culture, but we're also talking about the intersection of so many different cultural right. ideals and norms here. And as a person of Indian descent, Alison Roman has Columbus turmeric oh, yeah. to the <laughs> most um, successful degree of anybody I've ever seen Columbus an ingredient. Um, and a tablespoon of turmeric, just for the record, it's way too much fucking turmeric to put in anything. And I feel like I just, you know, every recipe I've seen her come out with, the stew is just curry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, And it seems like she's become extremely successful at taking foods of other cultures without giving any nod to those cultures, any nod that, you know, these are, these are indigenous foods of of a whole, you know, billion people um, and, and making it palatable to a white audience like mm-hmm. i i don't know i there's so much about her that rubs me the wrong way
3: <laughs> the well way you know there food. was the
1: big yeah
2: <laughs> the i'm sorry
3: justification of our foods
2: exactly 100 yeah. yeah yeah no it's it's uh you know i i think that she's stopped i you know since she left the new york times at the end of 2020 there was a big controversy last summer because Of comments she'd made about Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo and you know it it was very odd for her to make choose these women when they are of Asian descent and uh, she is this history of as you said co-opting different Asian flavors like the stew is a curry we know this the there was a miso soup at uh, the New York Times that was like You know, totally taken out of context. Like it was a miso soup. I don't know. Like it was just. Um, But I think that she now is just self published on YouTube and has a Substack, and I think is sticking to things like shrimp scampi and that, okay. you know, I, so I think that we can be less worried about the
1: situation now. Um, I I, think- to, I mean, to give listeners some, some background, yeah. Alison Roman you know, worked for the New York Times for the cooking section and she had these two cookbooks come out last year that went completely viral. They had recipes in them that went viral and one of them was called The Stew and if you look at it, it is just what like my mom would make. <laughs> There's turmeric and garam masala and it's just it's just a curry yeah Um, and but with again way too much turmeric for anybody's good (laughs) And, and there was a whole controversy about the cultural appropriation of her food but it really did come to a head when she she started talking shit about Marie Kondo and Chrissy Teigen and basically saying you know these women have sold out. I don't want to become these women. And I think, I think it was you, Alicia, who pointed out, well, you know, David Burke has branded, um, has branded cookware at Marshalls. And like, there are a ton of white chefs and white men who have quote unquote sold out and also like kind of get your money.
2: Like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, it's, it was a really odd, thing to choose those folks. You know, I think there's also like Jose Andres chips mm-hmm. and and clams, canned clams or the, you know, mussels and Escoveche. So like the, it was an odd choice because of the, all those things. And, and she lost her, her position at the New York Times. And she still has best-selling cookbooks. She has, I believe still the number one Substack in food and drink in terms of revenue. She's doing fine. Like we don't have to worry about like cancel culture having, <laughs> having taken away her livelihood. Um, I've never made one of her recipes. People like it. People like what they like. Um, <laughs> people like what they <laughs> like because of who gets jobs and who is, who is uh, visible to them. But at the same time, you know, more power to you. you she's doing well being, being independent now. With her audience, yeah,
1: <laughs> I do. I do. Just remember, like when when her cookbook came out, um, I was it last year. Was it the year before that? You know, COVID has completely <laughs> my brain out when it comes to time. But um, I I hadn't really heard of her yet, and I and one of my friends was trying to find her cookbook um, for. To get his wife for Christmas, I was like, "I have no idea what this is." And he's uh, he's of Mexican descent, and and she is not. And he basically turned to me. It was like, "It's this, it's this cookbook that all the white girls love to <laughs> they're they're all making all these recipes." Like basically, <laughs> I was like, "Okay, I get it. I do." Yeah, but haven't even seen
3: that for <laughs> centuries. I even know with black food, you see, you know, like hold up, that's just what we make at the house, <laughs> mm-hmm. but because it's in a different audience. It's like, oh my God, this is something amazing. Like we've been i my done I was a kid. That's nothing new. <laughs> Well, but also, like
1: that that you're gonna denigrate until a white person does it, right? right? Like how much Like how much has soul food been and 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 southern like specifically black southern cuisine been put down for being unhealthy or lesser, also with no eye toward why certain ingredients are used and that kind of thing. But you know, and and for the history of fine dining, Asian cuisine has never been in the conversation until recently, right? And it really does seem that it's until certain foods and certain cultures, cuisines get white validation that that's really what it takes. We've seen
3: that across all types of things, whether it be music or, you know, entertain, you know, all types of entertainment where, you know, once it gets mainstream validation, all of a sudden it's good. No, that's been good forever. like I'm, are you saying
1: Allison Roman is the is the food equivalent of Elvis Presley Maybe, You
3: know, my mom's <laughs> greens were good when I was a kid I didn't need her to make greens to know that I liked them
1: <laughs> right yeah
2: yeah no it's interesting yeah like Sean Brock and Charleston like totally took all of that food and just repackaged it into smaller plates and portion, you know, <laughs> and, the, and then that's what gets celebrated. That's what gets the cookbook deal, you know, and meanwhile, we have women who have been cooking that food for ages for, at an accessible price point in big portions for, you know, working people and then where they get celebrated, you know, way too late in life.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Um, my last question, really, is you know this is kind of something that I, I just talk. I have a lot of friends in the service industry, mm-hmm. um, across all levels of it, and you know I think that we co- we constantly talk about the word foodie, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the characterization of someone as foodie, and the idea that um, liking food is a personality trait. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I mean, you know, I am a hundred percent guilty of this. I'm always joking, but not really. That I'm kind of like, like I do relate to the caricature of Keanu Reeves's character in Call Me oh, Maybe, yeah. like yeah. when they're at that restaurant and they're they're like, they're eating the air, like the literal yeah. oxygen. <laughs> um, so I, I enjoy, like, I, I enjoy bougie shit like yeah. that from time to time. <laughs> um, but what are your thoughts on, like, the characterization of people as foodies and that term itself? Right. Well, I hate the word. I mean, it's, it's this
2: terrible word, of course, but at the same time, I've become, I've come to understand why people hate that caricature because, you know, that's a caricature where it's someone who is there for the scene and like, it doesn't really matter so much maybe whether the food is good and satisfying and and that sort of thing or like whether you're having a good time with the people you're with, like, it's more about like, you know, the yeah just like the the kind of status of the of the restaurant rather than anything else and you can have that status even if you're like in new york going to flushing and like finding the the best dumpling stall and and that sort of thing like you could you could be bougie about anything (laughs) if you're uh if you're in on that on that wavelength um but you know, for me, it's really hard. It's really hard to go back to restaurants and feel the same way about it um, after the pandemic. Like, obviously, before this, you know, I, in when I was living in New York, right before I moved to San Juan, I was working at a wine bar in the East Village. Like, my fiance when I met him was a bartender here in Old San Juan. Like, we know that the conditions and are poor. That the the treatment is bad for the most part. And so, it's been really difficult to. Have have that same kind of perspective on restaurants again. Like it's like, no, like this is just, this is a place of business. People are working. I'm getting something out of it. I'm paying for that service. And also like it's, but it's not about the status of this restaurant or anything. It's just like, it's a, a space to have a good time. I don't know. So like, that's why I'm really like not that excited about 11 Madison Park or going there because I know it would just feel so weird and like, like a performance or something, which mm-hmm. that has its place. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know, that's just not how I want to eat anymore.
1: <laughs> well, and ha- like so much of this has worsened at least, well, maybe not worsened is, isn't the right word, but like the pandemic has revealed all of the cracks yeah. in the food and service industry. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and right now there's this, there's this crisis going on where restaurants can't convince people to come back to work (laughs) (laughs) because the conditions are so bad. Yeah.
2: And the pay is so bad. And it's like, well, get your, get your shit together. And, and maybe you'll have people wanting to work for you again, but like the, something's gotta, gotta give at some point, you know, I just, there are people here at a coffee shop I just heard they're quitting because the manager won't give them $8 an hour versus $5 an hour. And like, this is a coffee shop. This isn't a restaurant. People aren't tipping 20% on everything they get there, but you're still going to pay people under minimum wage and won't give them a $3, you know, raise. It's Mm -hmm. like, these people can't, you know, they can't complain. They made their bed. Um, and so I think, I think I, I hope that we were going to see, you know, a different a different style, a different approach to to the service industry.
3: I just have one last thing. I just want to ask about how social media has impacted oh. the, <laughs> the food and what we do with our food. And you know, I'm guilty of it—taking pictures of food and posting it. You know, but just how is you look at you know just the service and all how all links together and how so many of us yeah. now we just can't wait. I don't know. Do we even enjoy food anymore? Do we enjoy the pictures (laughs) of the food?
2: (laughs) That's really a good question. And, you know, for me, it's like, well, my work is food. So of course I take pictures and like make pretty cakes and post them on Instagram and that sort of thing. Like I like, but for the most part, I do think it has changed people's relationship to it all. They want their food to be worthy of a picture that they post. Mm. And that is like a whole other expectation that sucks for you know <laughs> like I mean of course you want to have food that looks nice on your plate or that sort of thing but it's like at some point we have to like not focus on that like it can't be the point of our whole uh mm-hmm. eating lives you know we have to you know let go of the expectation of this like weird perfection you know of like wanting a birthday cake not because you want it to taste good but because you want it to be pretty and and you know sparkly or something <laughs> you know, people
3: will stop no, don't eat yet don't eat yet i haven't got the right picture yeah. so you're sitting there you're you're at the restaurant you want to eat but no no let me turn your plate move your hand back No, you No, your phone's in the way you got to move that move your drink to the side okay got my pictures been 10 minutes and my food's cold
1: uh Jason, for you and I never having had a meal together, that was wildly accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm 100% guilty of that. I always try to take the photo as quickly as possible. but yeah. uh, Meanwhile, I'm going over there like,
3: I'm hungry. Guilty, yeah. Could you please get this over with? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm putting my fork in this plate whether or not you snap this photo. <laughs> My my only thing about um about social media and food is can we really can we just stop this trend of people making like countertop pasta throwing things on their kitchen <laughs> islands and mixing them together? Like what where did this start? Who decided that this was a good idea? Can I blame TikTok? <laughs> yes, it is TikTok. <laughs> All right. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for, for talking to us. What are you cooking this week?
2: Oof! Today I'm actually just making tacos from canned black beans. <laughs>
1: um, no, I mean, you brought it up, so <laughs> I did
2: bring it up. I'm um I'm in the at the end of testing and getting down a bunch of recipes for a cookbook, mm-hmm. um a future cookbook not in my name, but it's going to be called Mastering the Art of Plant-Based Cooking, and so. I'm going to be focused on that and not on, you know, making dinner this week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that is very cool. We will, we will keep an eye out for that cookbook. Thanks. And again, thank you so much. And, you know, you, you, you write so interestingly about food and, you know, I think at the end of the day, food is such a universal thing. Food is love. Food is mm-hmm. family. Um, and we all come from completely different places when it comes to that. So it's just it's all it's really interesting to talk to people' perspectives about food, um, and and try to maybe uh, tamper down some of my own preconceptions. So, <laughs> thank you. And so I'll much. keep
3: on trying my plant-based stuff too. You know, keep expanding yeah. my palate from my my football-playing steak and potatoes. <laughs> It'll be, it's, it's been fun. It's been fun learning more than you know, and realizing that I don't have to have meat even with every meal.
1: Yeah. Well, one hundred percent. I'm going to try an Impossible sausage now because I had not had that yet. So. <laughs> got the Jason Jones stamp of approval. (laughs) Alicia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on Culture Calculus. I'm Kavitha Davidson for The Athletic. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to give us a rating if you can as well. And make sure to tune in every Thursday. We'll have a different episode, a different guest, and a different topic at hand. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.